Mamma Mia subscribers, you've been asking and we've been listening. Now you can get all of your exclusive subscriber audio on Apple Podcasts. That includes everything from bonus episodes of your favourite pods to exclusive segments to all of our audio series. To link your Mamma Mia subscription to Apple Podcasts, open the Mamma Mia Out Loud page in your Apple Podcasts app and follow the prompts or head to help.mamamia.com.au. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. You know how we love the Out Loud is? They, they've gone above and beyond. What have they done? Mm. So... I talked about my cousin Simon. Is it a sexy video? I wish. No, it's better than that. <laughs> if he's going to be happy tears, I don't think I'm oh, yeah. No, tears. happy, happy tears. So oh, on okay, Friday then. I mentioned that Simon, who's turning 36, yeah. my cousin. Oh, it's Wednesday's his birthday. Wednesday's his birthday. And, of course, he's in a home oh. where we can't visit him. He's in one of the most locked down areas in Sydney and it's just really sad. He keeps – I spoke to him on the weekend and I put him on to Luca and he just said, it's my birthday on Wednesday. Oh. So – He's very excited. Anyway. I've got to get his address from you. I bought him banana bread. Oh. And then I thought, he's not going to know who I am, so I might just say Luca's mum or maybe just say from Luca and Jesse. I He'll don't know. remember. Just send me the address. I get a message on the weekend from a woman named Lucy Jurak. You may oh, know her oh. as the most famous woman in theatre in Australia. Uh-huh. Who said that someone told her, little birdie told her, that Simon loves theatre and it's his birthday and he's having a bit of a rough time. And Lucy said... Could I send him a video to cheer him up or is there a favourite musical he has and I can no find way. the person? Lucy Durack. Lucy Durack. And she said I can amazing. find the person. And just before we sat down oh to record, God. she sent me the video and it is the most oh. beautiful thing I have ever seen. Simon is going to lose it. It is oh, the best, so best gift. Nice. People are good. People yeah, are good. People are good. They really are. Welcome to Mama Mia Out Loud, what women are talking about three times a week. I'm Holly Wainwright. And on the weekend, I, well, I was just telling Jesse Stevens this. I resurrected the Hamilton soundtrack as my go-to spirit lifter of choice because I was feeling a bit glum on Saturday. So I just put Hamilton on, on repeat, did the trick, perked me up, no end. That was the exciting thing that happened to me on the weekend. Over to you. I'm Jessie Stevens, and on the weekend uh, I put on the Inside soundtrack by Bo Burnham, which is speaking to me increasingly by the day. Um, loved it, loved it, still amazing. I'm Mia Friedman, and on the weekend I cleaned my bathroom and all the other bathrooms in my house. Satisfying? No. I cleaned out my um, cabinet, and it was it Your just bathroom looks cabinet. beautiful. Yeah, but that's a fun thing to that do. That is a fun thing. Because then you can rearrange products and reorganise. You were more mould. Scrubbing I was showers. So, I was soap scum. Soap scum. Yeah. Mm, I saw you were doing that on Saturday night and I was thinking, yeah. I would rather do anything else on a Saturday night than that. But Except I went to the, it was exciting because I got to go to the IGA for my one daily shopping trip and spend some time in the soap scum aisle. <laughs> Whatever that's So will called. your recommendation this week be a particular brand of soap scum? Uh, I bought a few and also toilet ducks. Mm. I love oh a toilet God. duck. Out loud as I apologise. Uh, we will try and do better at. for the rest of this show. We haven't started strong. 
we'll, we'll pull Speak it back. Speak for yourself, Holly Wainwright. It's, it's Monday. And on the show today, I try to sell you on how pandemic parenting has a silver lining. And Zoe Foster-Blake has built a business worth more than $170 million. You might have heard that she just sold half of it. Is she the perfect entrepreneur for our times? But first, Mia. Three pop icons, Lord, Billie Eilish and Lizzo, have released new albums this month. And they all paint a pretty dark picture of the damage caused by fame and the lengths that they've had to go to protect themselves from it. Being a pop star quite simply has never seemed less fun. Sorry, I should clarify, being a young female pop star has never seemed less fun. That's certainly the verdict of an article in The Guardian, which I wanted to bring to the show today. It was written by journalist Laura Snapes, who points out that Lord broke out at 16 and she's still only 24. And in this new album, she sings about being a teen millionaire, having nightmares from the camera flash and suffering from panic attacks before performances of her fistful of tunes that it's painful to play. She also sings about how she fled fame with its poison arrows aimed directly at my head to retreat to her New Zealand hometown for a more grounded kind of life. Billie Eilish is just 19 and she's already been famous for years and on her new album she sings about how things I once enjoyed just keep me employed now. She has been cancelled a few times or had attempted cancellations about her boyfriend and some tweets that he apparently sent years ago. The queer baiting thing. Yes, she was fooling around with a girlfriend and people said she was queer baiting, which means pretending to be queer to make herself more attractive to an LGBT audience. And she's always been very candid with her fans and also in interviews about how she feels that fame's ruined many elements of her life and how she suffered from crippling depression and anxiety because of it. And, you know, she wears a singlet top and there are like a thousand think pieces about body image and is she good, is she bad? And then there's Lizzo. She was in tears last week on her socials after being relentlessly trolled about her body and her race and her gender, which ironically came after she released that new video that I raved about on the show. That song is so good. I actually week. listened yeah. to it. Oh, the rumours are true. Yeah. I'll sing more of it. No, don't, like, don't. Please, God. And I, it's ironic because she, in that song, she claps back at her haters and she sings about how confident she is. So, Holly, my question is this. Has social media and the endless commentary and all the think pieces and opinion pieces that the internet has brought with it, has all of that made it harder to be a female pop star than it used to be? Or is it actually a positive thing that these women don't have to paint this fake, shiny, happy picture of their lives and maybe that's actually progress or are they just whingers? Discuss. Oh, well. (laughs) Okay, first thing I'm going to say is a little bit unpopular. Are you ready for it? Yes. I'm not really sure that I'm ready to add these super talented, successful, wealthy people to the very long list of people I'm worried about right now. Like I'm not 100% certain about that. (laughs) That list is crowded. I don't want to minimise any of their pain because I think it's valid and I think that there's a clue in the question you just asked me when you said, has the internet and the endless commentary that comes with made it harder to be a female pop star than it used to be, I would argue it's made it harder to be a female than it used to be, full stop, right? Like I think 
that there is no question that it must be absolutely exhausting and relentless to know that every single creative choice you make or just who you are, the color of your skin, the size of your body, the things you choose to put on it or not, it's going to be an endless sort of scrutiny and there are going to be people who think you're amazing and there are going to be people who think you're the worst thing ever and there are like it must be absolutely exhausting and creatively crippling like it is Mm. very very difficult to make art or make anything do your job under that level of scrutiny so I definitely think that it's in some ways it's probably great that they're talking about that pop stars have always been screwed up you know there's a very very long list of pop stars who have had mental health breakdowns and very notable drug addictions and all kinds of issues but I wonder if the external vulnerability that all these women are showing is helpful because we're not seeing a lot of it from the men, are we, Jesse? You were talking earlier today about another very notable album launch this week from somebody who is way more problematic than all of those women put together, and he doesn't seem to be twisting himself in knots to show us how difficult his life is. No, it's actually quite the opposite. So that's Kanye West. I filled in on the spill today and talked at length about Kanye West, who dropped his new album late last night, Australian Time, this album that he has been teasing for more than a year. I remember he'd been teasing and he was like, greatest album not of the year but of life is about to drop. I find him insufferable. Is that a popular opinion or an unpopular opinion? I don't care. I've always found him insufferable. I can't stand him. Keep going. So... He has been teasing this and in the meantime, Taylor Swift's like, oh, I just wrote this like little thing during quarantine. like Two albums and then she wrote. She dropped that, then she dropped another album and then she just quietly, she never makes a fuss in advance. I've got this thing I've talked about on this podcast about people tooting their horn before they do the thing. I think that Kanye had missed a lot of deadlines and he was the person pretending they'd finished the assignment when they hadn't started <laughs> and he was going, best album of life. You have not written a single song. Anyway... He dropped this album last night, which is going to be massive. It's already every song in the charts is is Kanye. And is it a good album? I haven't listened to any of the songs yet, but The people- critics say not. They say his best work is behind him. This is the thing about Kanye, right, is that I noticed that when Vanity Fair ran a story about it today, they said, notable shoemaker Kanye West <laughs> released yeah. his album because he is a billionaire. But most of his wealth now comes from his fashion line, his footwear line and his association with Gap. So he used to be regarded as a musical genius and I would concur with that. I used to love Kanye West's early early stuff. Listen to me as well, it's such a dick. But I think he knows that his best years are behind him and that's where a lot of this, what you're spot on, Jesse, a lot of this posturing about Mm. his genius comes from. Yes, and so he dropped this last night and he's been doing listening concerts which are like what you does get that mean thousands of people in a stadium where they had free vaccinations by the way like oh. all set up so you could which I thought you'd like actually I do like that well anyway you go to a stadium thousands of people and he makes them all listen to his music and just like feel it and yesterday does he perform the music or they just listen I think he, just he like might perform it? it and last night there were two people there well, there was Kim Kardashian, but that's another story. But two of the people there were Marilyn Manson, who you might remember very recently accused of sexual assault. He's fiercely denied it, but he has been accused of that by multiple people, most notably Rachel Evan Wood. 
And there was also a guy named DeBaby who I hadn't heard of, but literally weeks before, DeBaby had been performing and told everyone to get their cell phone lights out and, you know, how they do it like a lighter. A lighter, yeah. yeah. And he said, yeah, get your cell phones out unless you're gay or you have HIV and you'll be dead in two weeks. That's just what he said in front of an entire audience. Lollapalooza was like, well, you're not performing here. We're horrified. Super dangerous, super stigmatising, goes without saying. But Kanye decides he will have DaBaby, Marilyn Manson, on his album and at his listening show and then Chris Brown as well. He'll be on my album. (gasps) Who beat up Rihanna. Who beat up Rihanna, has admitted to it, has pled guilty, all of these people. Oh, my God. Kanye West is feels untouchable in the same way that someone like Joe Rogan feels untouchable. Joe Rogan does a lot of very controversial stuff but refuses mm. to be cancelled. And that's the thing about these men is that if you refuse to be brought down and criticism is untouchable to you, then a critical culture that doesn't stop interrogating you doesn't matter. Because you've just got this incredible, probably, level of narcissism. And I wonder if these women will be way better off. They'll be better off because they're seeing through the bullshit as they're living it. Kanye, full of bullshit, maybe. Oh, I don't think I agree with that because I think that maybe I was going to say another unpopular opinion is that it's not like Kanye West never gets any criticism. He gets shed loads of criticism all the time. Yes, like, but he, it doesn't affect remember him. Remember that time when he ran for president? Remember that? Mm, and he yeah. was with the MAGA hat and everybody was like, well, clearly you've lost your mind. And Kim Kardashian came out, and his, who was his wife at the time, and said, well, actually, let's all remember that he does suffer from bipolar and that he has these episodes, blah, blah. Kanye gets criticism all the time, but he doesn't let it affect him, as you said, Jesse. And I wonder if the, if you are going to play in this arena the arena of putting your art out there, you know, all of the things that we were just discussing with Lizzo and Lord, and that you all need to be a bit more Kanye. Because look at the kind of celebrities like Beyonce, who have just, they refuse to partake in public discourse. They just say, nah, that's, I'm not doing it. It's got nothing to do with me. I will give you my art when I want to give you my art and I will show you the pictures of myself that I want to show you, but you don't own me. I don't owe you anything. That's just what we're doing here. And it does make her uncancelable too. Can you be cancelled if you're not listening? I don't think we're talking about cancellation. I think what we're talking about is a level of scrutiny and a level of public commentary around not the work of these women, essentially the bodies and the appearances and the lifestyle choices of these women, which is not the kind of criticism or commentary that Kanye gets. So what Glennon Doyle says, and I think this quote is so pertinent to this conversation, she says that when a man puts work out into the world, people ask, is his work worthy? When a woman puts out work into the world, people ask, is this woman worthy of putting out work? Mm. And that's what happens with Lord and Billie Eilish and all of these women. It's it's about Lizzo's weight and their sexuality and their appearance and their choices and who they date. None of that commentary goes with male pop stars. None of it. I reckon it's internalised misogyny as well because I think we see in them the parts of ourselves that we hate, the parts of ourselves that want to be sexy and want to be recognised for that, the Mm -hmm. parts of ourselves that want to be bigger than we are 
and more powerful than we are and we see that and we feel irked by it. And Holly, you've made this point before that the thing about these women is that it's women who are their audience and Kanye, it's men. And men That was gonna be my final unpopular opinion for the segment. (laughs) It's our fault. We do it to these women. I mean, I know Mm. I'm not so it's our fault is flippant. This is a patriarchal system. There's systemized sexism here. And Mia, that is so breathtakingly true, that that Glenn and Doyle Mm. quote. But I wonder if that's what we do. Like when we listen to a Billie Eilish song, like the first time I ever heard Billie Eilish was, uh, I couldn't see her, right? So, you know, I heard the song. It's breathtakingly original and interesting. And I was like, who is that person? And then I go and see. And then the judgments that women always carry with them, like how old is she and what is she wearing? And come along with it. Maybe we have to own that. As, like women have to own that. Is that Kanye's fans are not going to cancel Kanye? They don't give a stuff about who Kanye's married to or what his mental state is. Or they just go legend, music, shoes. You know that's what they're thinking. But Maybe. how come he's allowed to do that without criticism? How come he's I allowed think he to gets associate? But without repercussions because we again it's about the work and in fact it extends to sports people as long as you're playing good tennis as long as you're playing good rugby league jack debellin being considered potentially as a captain for his as long as you are doing the good work we do not care what you do in your private life Mm. women completely the other way around Hi guys, it's Lucy calling from Melbourne. Sorry about the wind and the mask, which is probably muffling my voice. I'm just walking to get my morning takeaway coffee after being released from isolation this morning after getting my negative test result back after my the cafe where I work was a tier two site. Anyway, just listening to you talking about don't be a dick, which I love as a mantra. And I just thought it was pertinent I call up for me as a puppy because I've actually taught my puppy the command, don't be a dick. He's not a puppy any longer, he's four now, but when I say don't be a dick, he knows stop what he's doing, stop the the attitude, often it's towards other dogs. So anyway, if you want to teach Bonnie, don't be a dick, highly suggest it. Thanks so much for your work, for keeping me company. I love listening to you guys. Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. I'm going to try and sell you a tricky idea now. Is everybody ready? Yeah. <laughs> now, if there's a recurring theme that in the content that I write about and talk about and all those things, it's women and kids and work. Now, I know I'm not alone in that. Mia, I believe, actually wrote the book about this. Work Strike Ooh, A book. Yeah, one of, the, one of the books about this. But it's never been a more pertinent issue because as we go into this endless second year of the pandemic. Parents all over the world have been completely crunched. Working parents have been completely crunched. You can't move for headlines about American mothers are in crisis, mental health epidemic in Australian working families. All the parents are not okay. Yeah. The parents are not okay. And there is no question that that is true. Women in particular are trying to work 
while having their children at home and homeschool and all those things. And it's incredibly difficult. But I'm reading this book at the moment that I'm going to bore you about later in the week when we talk about something else that's called Wintering. It's by this writer called Catherine May. And it's, it's, it's a long story, but I listened to this interview with her that she did about it on Vox. And one of the things she said about something the pandemic has done made me prick up my ears and go, that is so true. She said, I think the pandemic has externalized a lot of stuff we used to keep hidden. And parenting is a perfect example of that. I think that many of us have felt that we had to pretend our kids are not a concern when we're in the workplace. We have to just suck it up and make it work at home rather than ever say, I can't do that because I have to pick up from school or I can't do that because my kid will want to spend some time with me every evening and I don't actually want to skip that. It's like we've manifested some of the things that we were trying very hard to hide. Now, I think this spoke to me so much is we have discussed before the impossible demand of our culture that we work like you don't have children and parent like you don't have a job. Mm -hmm. So that both areas of your life and your world, you can entirely shut out the other one and be perfect at the one that you're focusing on at the time. And we've discussed how impossible that is and how in many cases it's making us sick and it's possibly making our kids sick too because there's this kind of cohort of hyper-stretched anxiety riddled parents who are always always feeling like they're underperforming so when I heard Catherine May say that I was like that is true I mean I know that even this discussion comes from a very privileged position about people who work from home and people who are trying to supervise their kids learning from home but we can't we literally can't pretend anymore that our kids don't exist or that they don't need us And all those conversations that used to be so hard to have in the workplace, like I need to log off a bit for a while this afternoon to do this thing with my kid, but maybe I can get back to that later. Or can I change my working hours this week because there's this demand on me or whatever it is. All those conversations that were so difficult to have, have had to be had. They've been forced into the light. And my hard sell is that I think it's going to be very hard to put that back in the bottle and that actually we might find that these couple of years and let's hope it is only a couple of years might have shifted things for working women in that we might have to be the last generation to pretend that we're working like we don't have children and parenting like we don't have a job what do you think of my new thesis I agree I'm really enjoying this just stroke of optimism you've had which is new and exciting surprise and delight (laughs) Uh, I really like that. You're so sarky, my dear. And I wonder (laughs) if, in fact, it can be broadened to non-parents as well to work as though we don't have lives and to live lives as if we don't work. So you hear a lot of working mothers in particular say, and I, I hear this on podcasts I listen to, I listen to a lot of podcasts with writers who arguably have you know, one of the most malleable jobs when it comes to kids, but they talk quite candidly about childcare and and how they have to balance it. But I wonder if this, if this thing about mothers saying, I feel this pressure to work like how I did before, like you hear women come back to the workforce and be like, oh, well, I can't do those 12 hour days anymore or whatever. This might be a challenge to the before. Maybe there should be no before where in your 20s, you sacrifice 
a decade of your lives to really leaning into your career at the expense of all else, maybe this is a time where you strike more of a balance, which we're seeing with with people, you know, going for a walk at lunchtime like they didn't before. And there are other elements and we've talked about, you know, people with sick parents or chronic illness or maybe you got a new puppy or maybe you're renovating your house, whatever it is. And that stuff doesn't always work around a nine to five. And I, I wonder if that's kind of an opportunity for for everyone to strike more of a balance and be honest about what's what's happening in their lives now that we've had this window quite literally through Zoom and Google Hangouts into people's homes. How much though do we have to bring it back to capitalism and say that it's not really anyone else's responsibility except your own to find that balance? Isn't that true? Like is it your employer's responsibility to make sure that you've got time to spend with your puppy or your child or your parent or your trainer? I reckon that for a, a long time, and the evidence suggests this, is the workday has blown out and this is, you know, studied throughout pretty much since the 70s as it's blown out that's become the philosophy that it's like this is the work that needs to be done. It depends what your job do- is yes, though. Yes. Like some people can't take their work home with them, can they? Of course not. Exactly. Course not. But I don't know. I, I think that it's become less about getting the work done and more about how much time is spent sitting at the desk or being online or being present. Uh, and I mean, neither of those things are really in the best interest of the employer either because you get a burnt-out workforce mm, that comes to work shitty or... And you also get a smaller pool to choose from because if, you've mm. got, if you want experienced, smart people but who might have to not be at their desk between three and five because they're picking up their kids and have got to organise a meal or drop them, but who could then get back online later on that evening... Surely that's better for the employer to get the good, smart people rather than the people who are happy to pretend that their kids don't exist. I know a lot of employers who've had their mind changed forcibly through the pandemic because they had to. So a lot of when you had to send everybody home, if you were an office-based employer, a lot of employers were worried about, oh, what about productivity and how we make – and I know this is something that happened all over the world and what most um, employers that I've spoken to discovered is that productivity increased and morale increased and people were so happy to not be having to do their commute or being able to spend more time with their kids or being able to go for a run in the morning and sort of work their own hours a little bit more. And I agree, Holly, I think that will be very – difficult in a good way to wind back. It made me think of that video that went viral. It would have been three, four years ago now of that guy. He was an expert in something North Korean and he was doing a BBC interview from home, but he was wearing a suit. And then his one of his children wandered into his, the room. His daughter with the beautiful little glasses. Yeah. And then his wife sort of came in and crawled on her stomach to try to pull the child out. And it's so funny that we thought that was so funny. And now that is what you see all day, every day on every Zoom call. And something that I was thrilled to see return was Lockdown Holly 
because <laughs> at the start of obviously we're all New South Wales based and Jessie and I went into lockdown much earlier than Holly and Holly moved to the country so her children were still at school. So Holly didn't go into lockdown for another couple of months. I'm losing track of time. And on the first week that Holly had to do homeschooling, <laughs> it was like, oh, God, I've missed lockdown, Holly, because it's like every two seconds she got up from the Zoom to scream at some <laughs> child, some dog, screaming about a password to Brent. It was glorious to behold. My favourite is when you're speaking to Holly and a child has walked into the room but she doesn't know yet and there's like a child that looks like a ghost yeah. in the doorway and I'm like, Holly's about to crack it and it's like, Holly, <laughs> Matilda is walking very slowly towards you. I know, it's true, all artifice has been removed. (laughs) But I wonder, because I know, Jessie, you stress a lot about managing career and children, and I wonder if the optimistic spin I'm choosing to put on this difficult moment is that maybe this was going to be inevitable with the mass, you know, mass employment of mothers, that there was going to be a point at which mothers pushed back and said, hey, we've also got to tinker with these rules a bit. You know, if we're all going to be here and we're all going to be doing this forever and ever and ever, we need to tinker with some of these assumptions that this kind of a workday is the only way to work and blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I'm choosing to see the glasses half full instead of spill all over my keyboard and smeared all over my face like it actually is. Zoe Foster-Blake has sold a controlling stake in GoTo Skincare, the company she founded, to the company who's behind Sukin and Andalou and Nourish Life. They're called BWX. And look, we all knew Zoe was a successful businesswoman. Did we know what that truly looked like? Probably not because we don't fully, I'm speaking on behalf of Holly and I, we don't fully mm-hmm. understand business. True, yep. I own a bunch of her products and I think they're fabulous. So I was like, Mm. that woman, I mean, she's worth what, a million? I don't know, (laughs) but a lot. Then we found out something on Friday afternoon and it blew up every single one of my group chats. So a 50.1 stake. Percent. Yes. 50.1%, which I believe is just over half. Yes. Of her thing. It is. But only just. Only just, just. Only just. So I think that's what they mean by controlling stake. Honestly, I've learned so much about business. <laughs> this Between this and Shark Tank, I've got it. A 50.1% stake in go-to skincare went for $89 million. I tried Ooh. to do the maths and I think that together that means the business is worth like 170 It does. Okay. $171 million it was valued at. $171 million, and that's just a silly amount. And it's owned by Zoe and three other shareholders who are her partners in the business, three guys. That's where I got very confused when it mm-hmm. went, Zoe has 40% of the 49.9%. Yeah, it's not equal. Exactly. <laughs> so she has 40% of the company. So she will get 40% of that $89 million. Oh, so that's not even that much. And she owns 40% of a company <laughs> worth $171 million. That's, it's silly. BWX <laughs> said that her 2014-born company, that's not that long ago, had a range of simple, trusted and effective skincare products for the market. And last year alone, it generated $36.8 million in revenue. And I just want to play a little bit of your no filter with her, Mia, because it's really insightful. At a board level, I've had to really step up and become financially literate and and stop playing that 
you know, for years when I was pregnant or breastfeeding and I was sitting in the board meetings, I'd be like, do, 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 do. As soon as we'd start talking about financials, I'd just get so bored. But you can't do that. It's not cute after a while. So I have to show up and be a professional and I'm okay with that. God, I could relate to that. I could so relate to that because my eyes also glaze over when we talk about the financials of my business. Yes. Well, mine are entirely glazed over when it comes to money at all. But there is so much that's interesting about Zoe Foster Blake. But what I'd love to discuss. First of all, we should say congratulations. Oh, Oh, I mean, congratulations. Amazing. It's what a success story. Like building a company worth that amount of money in a short amount of time is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. In Australia. And that's, yeah. She has created one of the most powerful and beloved brands in Australia right now. She's got 782,000 followers on Instagram, which is great. And that's been accumulated through a long career in media. She's an author. She's an ambassador. She's married to Hamish Blake. But that following doesn't necessarily ensure success because there are people with comparable followings who have released a makeup line, a pyjama line, an activewear line, and they're not making millions of dollars. What do you think it is about Zoe, Mia? Well, Zoe's always been extraordinarily talented. I've learned a lot from her. I hired her uh, to be a beauty editor at Cosmo when I was editing there and she always stood out as someone who just she's very unassuming in person so she's not a big personality mm. she's very reserved like quiet, yeah. she's very shy but when she writes she is extraordinary and she you can just tell that that that's when she's in flow mm. when she's writing she's just got such an original fresh voice and she always has so she's always been incredibly diligent about her writing and about the tone of voice that she's had in her writing. I mean, even down to when she worked at Cosmo, her out of office message, you know, and it's usually I'm away from, you know, I'm on holiday. I don't even know how to put one on. Exactly. Yeah. Hers would be like a spaceship's just landed on Mars and in it is like it would just be this incredible story. She has a very, I would say, the most distinctive tone. Yeah. And people can tell in her captions and that tone has extended to the branding on all the products. It has. And she revolutionised the way beauty writing happened because she brought humour to it. And I used to be a beauty editor and I know lots of beauty editors and in my experience, beauty editing for most journalists is a springboard to becoming an editor and it's like a way station you have to pass through. But for her, when I sort of tried to accelerate her onto that track of, of being an editor, she said she didn't, wa- she didn't want that and that set me back on my heels. I'd never spoken to anyone who didn't want to be an editor. I was shocked by that and I've supported her in it and watched her just – she was the first person I knew to start a blog. She started a blog called Fruity Beauty because she had – you know, more than she could then could be put in a monthly magazine. And she really communicated, she brought humour and tone and wit and sass to beauty writing and she carried that in into her business. And I think the other thing that's been really interesting to see, and I think it's really important to say that Zoe had a cult following before she married Hamish. Yes. It's really important that people know that. I mean, together they are a brand now as well and with their kids and with their Tourism Australia ads. But before that... She's always understood women and she's been mad about beauty, like 
passionate about beauty. And when I sort of used to, as her editor, try to move her on from that, she was adamant that she loved it. And the other thing I think is really interesting about GoTo is that unlike a lot of so-called influencers who've built brands, she's not the face of that brand. I mean, she is the face of it. But when you look at the GoTo Instagram, she's barely on it. You know, they sometimes persuade her to make an appearance, but she's always been, because she's very shy and she's very specific about what she wants to create, she's never just built that brand on her star power. She's built which it she could on have. the, which she could have. She's built it on the quality of those products. I think it's interesting because we were talking before when we were talking about the female pop stars, about how women have all these extra barriers. They cut like successful women have all these extra barriers and it makes it very hard for them to win. Mm. You know, you're either to this or you're to that. And I feel like Zoe Foster Blake in Australia, certainly at the moment, she's won. You know what I mean? She's been playing that game and she's won because she's impossibly successful, now impossibly wealthy, but she's also impossibly likable. At least her brand Mm. is impossibly likable. That's why women like her because there's, and that is not easy to pull off because the thing is, is you're, you're so right, Mia, that she's not the face of the brand. But I think that one of the reasons why it's gone so well with the young audience is they do want to be her. She is aspirational. We hate that word, Mm. but she is definitely aspirational. And beauty has had this moment too in the past five years or so, but certainly supercharged in the past two, where suddenly it does feel more accessible to know about serums and skincare and face oil and why I might have two go-to face cleansers instead of one and why I might have that thing and that thing and all those. But she always makes it seem like that's not a dickhead thing to do. That's Mm. what a nice person does who's investing in themselves. And it's really interesting because I think we've talked a lot about the rise of the girl boss and the hustle culture. And I love that. I think it is genuinely changing now. Women talking about money or being seen to want to make money is genuinely changing in that this is broadly being celebrated. This news about go to and Zoe in particular is broadly being celebrated rather than sneered at. Again, is that because of this halo effect that women are just like, I want to be like that. And is that sustainable? I don't know, but maybe it doesn't need to be. It, I mean, she's been around for a while. Jessie, oh, give us some insight has. into why young women, I mean, I see it here at Mamma Mia, mm. why are young women so obsessed with Zoe Foster Blake? She is so girl next door. She's likeable. She's funny. She talks to you. She doesn't speak at you. She doesn't speak down to you. She doesn't speak to you like you're an idiot. When she does the videos where she shows you how to use the products, it's not alienating. It's very inclusive and her products always have been. And I think as well there was a really great line in one of the interviews that she did about how you make a business this big. And it's that people don't buy your products once. They buy them again and again Mm. and again. You do not get to this level without creating really good Mm -hmm. products. And I remember someone in the book industry told me, you know, an influencer or a famous person can write a book and maybe they'll even be a bestseller in the first week. The next week it will disappear because the thing that sells products more than anything else is word of mouth. And it is in group chats. It's saying to mates, hey, Face Hero is really good Mm. or I got this new cleanser. I've recommended her products before. I think that's got to be it. And she decided to do this 
you know, beauty brand because that's where her expertise lay and she knew that that's Mm. what she was really good at. And I think as well it's a lot to do with the way it looks in your cupboard. Like it just, it's beautiful, that colour really works. And with any success there's an enormous amount of skill but it's when skill meets luck. And Zoe Foster Blake could not have imagined she would meet this moment. So it's it's both things at once. Great time to sell, Zoe. I know nothing mm. about business, but great time to sell. And if you want to hear that interview that I did with Zoe on No Filter a couple of months ago, it was actually in two parts. It was fascinating. Part of it was about her business. Part of it was about Hamish and her family and her career. We'll put a link in the show notes. A recommendation before we go, Mia, you have a show for us to watch. Oh, I loved watching on the weekend The Chair on Netflix. I loved it so much. It stars Sandra Oh, who many people will know from Killing Eve or Grey's Anatomy. She's one of my favourite actresses and she plays a newly installed chair of the English department at an American university. And the interesting thing about this show is that it was written and the showrunner, the executive producer, is Amanda Peet. Do you know, do you remember her? She's an actress, such a beautiful actress. I can't remember what she was in. Isn't that terrible? I know her face so well. But she was quite famous. But then she wrote this essay a while ago about how she didn't want to get Botox and how all her contemporaries, she the only way she could stay relevant in her industry was to really start surgically altering her face and she decided that she didn't want to do that. Anyway, so she decided to start writing and her husband is the executive producer of Game of Thrones. So she's kind of, and she's famous, she's friends with all these famous people because she's an actress. Something's got to give. She was in Something's Got to Give. Yes. Yeah. And she's been quite honest about how you know, a lot of those roles were just really misogynistic and she basically knew she wasn't going to be Kate Blanchett and Nicole Kidman. So she went, how can I keep working and keep being creative? And so she started writing and she, she was asked, I listened to an interview with her about this thing with Sandra Oh, and she was asked, did you want to write this part for yourself in the chair? And she said, look, I just can't get it up for myself. I can't get excited <laughs> writing a role for myself. Uh, so anyway, it's just, it's such a great, it's about um, this, it's about political correctness and life on campus. It's a comedy, but it's actually also a romantic comedy and it's just oh. brilliant. And the episodes are quite short. There's six episodes. It's called The Chair and it's on Netflix. Dying to watch it. That is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mummy Out Loud. It was produced by our wonderful Emma Gillespie and the executive producer of Out Loud is Eliza Ratliff. We'll see you on the Mamma Mia app. Bye. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.